0: The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Your copy of God's Word to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah 3, we have uh, been in this series, this uh, short series here in the month of September, just taking the book of Jonah, a chapter on our website and on our sermon podcast. Uh, But throughout our study of Jonah, we've been captured by the relentless character and nature of God, haven't we, church? Like The the story of Jonah is not just about uh, uh, some guy who gets swallowed by a big fish, but it is about God's relentless character, his relentless nature, uh, uh, that he is about his mission. And we've said this along the way, that God does nothing halfway. He can't. He is the epitome of all uh, the attributes of himself. He goes to the very extent of his activity. He leaves none of his work unfinished. And he is not delayed, as we've seen, by weather, unbelief, nor foolishness. Praise the Lord, right? He is outside of all of that. He doesn't ease up nor slow down in carrying out his purposes on this earth. He, rather, God, who the book of Jonah is about, keeps a relentless commitment to his mission, even when we, even when his people, even when the prophets that he has raised up lack faith. So just to give a little recap, Jonah 1 begins with uh, uh, God's uh, commitment to his mercy, with him beginning by sending Jonah to the Ninevites. He uh, commissions him to this mission. And instead of making the journey to Nineveh, Jonah, he goes in the complete opposite direction, doesn't he? And he puts a whole bunch of people in peril. He, he makes a, a, a number of foolish decisions. And God has to mercifully swallow him up in the belly of a big fish in order to preserve him. And then Jonah 2, where we were last week, is Jonah's thankful prayer for God's relentless rescue of him. After he sees, uh, experiences God's uh, uh, discipline, As the Lord that cast him into the sea, even in his discipline, he is being rescued by the Lord. And so as we come to the point in the story where we are today in Jonah 3, the question remains, well, what is God going to do with Jonah? He has mercifully rescued him, but what will he do now? Will God put Jonah on the bench or will he put him back in the game? That's the question Let's go to Jonah 3 now. Follow along in your scripture and let's find out what happens next. Jonah 3 says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, "Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown." And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe. "'covered himself with sackcloth and in ashes, "'and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. "'By the decree of the king and his nobles, "'let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. "'Let them not feed or drink water, "'but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, "'and let them call out mightily to God. "'Let everyone turn from his evil way "'and from the violence that is in his hands. "'Who knows?' God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word for God's people. Church, here's the bottom line of Jonah 3. There is no stopping God's relentless mission. If we're to take anything away from this chapter and the passage that we just read, as we, uh, our mind is focused in not necessarily on the works of Jonah nor the response of the Ninevites, but on the Lord, it is on God and there is no stopping His relentless mission. Write that down. Write it in the header of your Bible as we've been doing each week so you remember the theme and the bottom line of this chapter. See, Jonah 3 here is God's recommissioning of Jonah with the same assignment. As we ask the question here, we know what happened in chapter 1. We know Jonah's thankful prayer. And so what did God do with Jonah? Did he put him back on the bench because of his foolishness? Shake your head with me. He did the exact opposite. He put him back in the game with the same assignment. And so I want to just point out a few things. The similarity It's probably just on one page. We're going to kind of flip back and forth here because I want you to see the written similarities here. Go to Jonah 1, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Back to chapter 3. How did it begin? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Similarities, right? It's right there, the word of the Lord coming to him. Go back over to Jonah 1. It says, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Go back to chapter 3, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Same message, same assignment. Word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and he sends him on this mission. Now, there's a difference here in verse 3. Go back to chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Second chance in chapter 3. What happens in verse 3? So Jonah arose and fled from the presence. Nope. What does it say? And went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So what's the difference here? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Jonah obeys. He gets a second chance. His obedience, he is being sent into the mission. God is putting him back in the game and saying, hey, run the same play I asked you the first time. Do what I tell you to do. Go on my mission to the Ninevites. Take my word. Do exactly as I say. And Jonah obeys. He runs the play. He carries out the mission that God has sent him on. And so here's just a question I think that we need to understand here at the the very outset of this passage here. And it is this. What is God's mission, church? Like, what is he uh, up to? We need to be clear about this. Like, what is God's activity here on this earth? What is he set out to do? What is God purposefully doing in uh, our lives and through the church and through this world for his glory? What is he up to? We have to be clear because what God is doing, this is what we should be doing with our lives as well. And maybe a helpful way to think about this is what is the Lord doing is to think in terms of, well, what did Christ come to do? What would compel uh, the second member of the Trinity, God's own son, the second person, what would compel him to leave his heavenly throne, to put on human flesh and come to live a life like ours? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly, Clearly, hear what the mission of God is, why did Christ come, and what the mission then we are on as well. Note these verses here on the screen luke nineteen ten tells us directly, for the Son of Man came to what to seek and save the lost. Mark tells it this way in mark ten forty five for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. For many see church, this is why Christ came this is his mission. He came to save the lost he came to give his life as a ransom for those who were his enemies. This is why Christ came to make disciples and to ransom them. Paul tells Titus it this way in Titus 2:14, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, rather, not jealous, zealous for good works. We know the mission has been given to us in the form of the Great Commission that we refer to often around here of our mission statement is what do we do we preach we talk about these verses often from matthew 28 just before jesus ascended into heaven he left his disciples with this jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me jesus saying hey all the power all the authority over everything that you see guess who's in charge jesus and he sends them then he says go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God sends us, He goes with us as we are working on His mission. See, the mission can be summed up like this. God's mission is then to make mature and multiply disciples all for His glory. Write that down. uh, Memorize that. What is God's mission? It's to make mature and multiply disciples all to his glory. This is what he's doing on this earth. He is redeeming a people for his own possession and sending them out, commissioning us, 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 a people to do his work, to do good works. This is what the Lord is up to. And so as we say, there's no stopping God's relentless mission. This is what This is what the Lord is up to. And if Jonah teaches us anything, there's no stopping God's relentless mission. He would not be stopped from saving the Ninevites. He had a mission. He had amongst this uh, pagan nation, amongst this Gentile, hostile, cruel people, that he was going to save, mature, and multiply to his glory. And there was no stopping it. If we're to be shocked by anything, it's not necessarily that Jonah is, is being swallowed up or was swallowed up by a big fish, but we should be shocked then that it is God who calls us into this mission, that he would save enemies of his for his glory, despite all our doubts, despite all our mistakes, and despite all of our just downright knuckleheadedness. It's a new word, you write that one down too. This is what the Lord is up to, and this is what God will not be stopped in. So then, knowing what we know about the Lord, and knowing what we know about His mission, then what does this? What does this leave for us to do from the text? Does it instruct us in any way as we want to learn to obey the Lord? Well, let's look a little closer because I do think it teaches us several things here. And the first point is this: that we're to be useful to the Lord. We're to be useful to the Lord. I've already pointed this out here, but come back to verse 1 and notice the second chance that has been given to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Praise the Lord for second chances, amen? When's the last time you, you thanked the Lord for that second chance he gave you? You're running, you're doing something, choosing to walk into your sin, choosing to live a life, Uh, according to your own desires, according to your own wants and passions. And the Lord just very mercifully gives you a second chance. You may be here this morning. You may be listening this morning. And this may be God's second chance for you. His word coming to you even this morning, calling you back into a life of faithful obedience, calling you back into a life of purposeful mission of using your life for the Lord. Have you ever had, just in another way, have you ever had one of those moments where you just like kick yourself from missing a gospel opportunity? Maybe you've been talking to a coworker or a neighbor, and they've opened up their heart a little bit and explained—you know—told you something that's maybe uh, got them worried, or or they've, you know, they're just walking through a tough season in their life, or uh, or they're talking about, you know, whatever—the politics, the weather—and you could feel the just the their sense the 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 prompting of the Holy Spirit to say something about the Lord. Pray for them. Just open your mouth. And for whatever reason, you, you, you chicken out, or, or you, you, you get nervous, your palms get sweaty, or, or a kid comes up and interrupts the conversation or whatever, and the moment's lost, and it's like, oh, man, and then you, then you come back later, and you're thinking about it, and you're like, I miss the opportunity. That ever happened to you, or is that only something that happens in my life, like, every single day? You know what happened to you? Well, here's the thing. Praise God for second chance. Praise God that relationships continue on, that in the sovereignty of God, as you are purposefully living living missionally, even if you uh, totally drop the ball, even when God gave you an opportunity and you ran the exact opposite way, when God gives you a second chance, here's the thing, y'all, take it. Just be useful to the Lord and understand that God is still at work. And even if you have to take the second chance, and even if it means a 500-mile walk to get there, I would say, take it. I say 500 miles because that's the exact, uh, the, the, well, maybe not the exact, but that's the distance, the calculated distance from Israel there to the city of Nineveh. It was 500 to 550 miles uh, to get there. So when God calls Jonah here in verse 2, he says, go to Nineveh. What he's saying is, hey, over the next four to six weeks, you know, if you can like commandeer a donkey or a camel or something, otherwise get walking, he sends him there. He has this whole uh, journey to get there, and that's like a lot of time to think, right? I mean, in our day of, of pretty rapid travel, where we could fly 500 miles and and you know in a matter of uh, uh, you know probably what's that a couple hours a 500 mile flight something like that maybe less hour flight or so we can get places. We can drive that distance even in a day if we are hauling. But Jonah's called to go there. He's lots of time to think. And even as he gets there, this city is, look at the words that it says, it's an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth, that the surrounding area would take a total of three days to walk to get there, which is pretty, like we can put ourselves in that. If we were to walk to San Antonio and try to get to the south side of that, it would probably take quite a bit of time. Now the Bible Knowledge Commentary provides some insight into the city of Nineveh at this time. Note this, it says that the city was surrounded by an inner wall and an outer wall. The huge inner wall was 50 feet wide and 100 feet tall. Now that's that's a fortress, right? 50 feet wide where they, multiple chariots could go across the top of, uh, of the wall all the way around it. And the outer wall encompassed fields and smaller towns. So there's like the inner city and then all the city. And so Jonah's called there. He makes the journey. And then it says in verse 4, he, he would come to the city. He'd travel a day's journey. And then he would preach. And he had a very specific, albeit short, message. And so notice God's, call, or notice God's instructions to him in verse 2. And he says, go to Nineveh, the great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. Very specific. Jonah, don't get cutesy. Don't get creative. You don't have to come up with anything. You are my messenger. You are my ambassador. Here is all you have to say. And the message is very simple. The message very simple in, in uh, verse 4. In Hebrew, it's actually only five words. But his mission, message, in which he was sent to preach, was this: "Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overturned." Now, here, here's the reality: Jonah. He was like an OG hellfire and brimstone preacher. Just real simple, like "turn or burn, baby." That's all. You just coming? There's no hope of the Messiah. No grace of God, just he comes in. Forty days, Nineveh shall be overturned. And the power of their response, which we'll get to in a bit, is not in Jonah as an eloquent, powerful preacher. It's not in his uh, uh, acute words. The power is in the word. The power is in God by his spirit who will turn their hearts. And he's just sent with this message of God's wrath. See, God's wrath is the dark contrast to His bright mercy, isn't it? You know, we talk often about the good news. We talk often about the gospel, the mercy of God, the forgiveness that is offered to those who will turn from their sin. But here's the thing, we can't diminish the bad news. Good news is truly good when it's uh, it's contrasted with the bad news, that our sin has consequences and God will pour out His wrath on our wickedness. But cringe, right? Cringe because we just don't like that. We don't like to tell people about that because we're afraid we're going to hurt their feelings or we're going to uh, ruin the relationship. Others, maybe, uh, of us, here, like we, we, just, we, we actually love it. We use that. We use the message of God's wrath and we swing it around like a big old club that just bludgeon people. Right? Better turn it's even around mission, when we're being useful to the Lord, speaking the message as ambassadors of the Lord, saying exactly the things that the Lord would tell us as useful to the Lord. We must warn those we love about the danger of repentance and, or the danger of our sin and call them to repentance. We must also offer them the hope, the solution, and the rescue that is found in Christ and in Christ alone who is our hope it's 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 cruel to only warn somebody without offering a solution be like a kid with a broken arm going to the doctor and the doctor's like yep you have a broken arm and it's probably going to leave you disfigured and you're never going to be able to throw a baseball again and you know what just stinks to be you never go to that doctor the doctor who has to warn say, "Yeah, this is a serious break. And left untreated, and this, this is what's happened. But here, you know what? I think we have a plan for fixing what is broken. A cast and a treatment plan. You're going to have to take a back seat for a while. You're not going to be able to play baseball for a while. But I think with some rest and a care plan, here's how we can overcome this. This is the message. This is how we are useful, and it is in just even the simplicity of the." truth of who god is who we are and the call to repent and believe on christ jonas sent he's sent here to another country but even as we're in this and we're trying to think well how how I be useful to, to the lord the, the reality is that uh, the, probably very few of us are going to be sent to another country to call people to christ some of you maybe are hoping for that some of you want to be sent and some may some may be sent, but all of us are being sent on mission. All of us have been commissioned, like Jonah. It may not just be to a hostile uh, country. But see, we're all called to, uh, we're all being sent rather to call people to Christ. And I use those words intentionally here this morning because I think the words and the thinking of like sent and calling and all that gets jumbled up and confused. We think of like people being called or sent like, oh, that's the preacher's job. Oh, that's a foreign missionary's job. Oh, this is them. Or we also hear people just using this language like, I think God is calling me to Africa. I think God is calling me to be a pastor. I think of God calling me to... Quit my job or to go to school or whatever. And, and the ideas here of sending and calling are, are maybe jumbled up in our culture. And so whenever I hear people say these things, like, I think God is calling me to do something. My normal response to them is, hey, that's really cool. Let's put it to the test of God's word and see where he might be sending you and what that you are hearing from the Lord. See, our calling can be so nebulous. And it comes up here because he says, call out against it. And so uh, let me just... Try to provide some clarity to what might be confusing in your life. The Bible uses the term uh, called in two very specific ways in the scripture. He, there is a gospel call like we see here. Uh, as as uh, preachers and God's people, call others to Christ. This is, this is what we do, where you, like, like Jonah is sent to call them back to the Lord. That's the gospel call. There's also, the Bible uses what we can classify as the saving call. We have the gospel call and the saving call. Or another word for that is regeneration. When you were uh, called from death to life. Like uh, Jesus calling Lazarus, who is dead in the tomb, back to life. He calls him out. Or in Romans 8, when, in, in the chain there, when it says that those whom he predestined, he also called. Calling means he called us to life. He saved us. And so in the Bible, these are the two words of calling. And you don't see it as, oh, God calls some to be pastors. God calls them to be missionaries. God calls us to do things. No, there's a sense of sending that God does. And those that aspire, that those who want to, and he uses our passions and our desires and our giftings in order to do that. So when it comes to this sense of, well, what is God, what is he sending me to do? Or what is God's will for my life in this situation? There's like this internal sense that we have, do we want to do this? And then thankfully, God gives us uh, some external things uh, that we can put to what I call the triple-A test. Just uh, form this, uh, use this often with people. As uh, you may be asking questions, uh, is God calling me? I'd say it was God sending me, just rearrange our thinking a little bit to be more clear and biblical here is God sending me to this school is God calling me to marry this person is God sending me to Africa is God sending me to wherever is this God's will for my life put it to the test does it uh, agree with biblical wisdom as we come to the scripture, is this, is this a biblically wise thing to do? And so search through the scriptures, is this, is this something that he is in line with his will, his very express will of how I am to live in a biblically wise and obedient way? The second thing is, does it advance the Great Commission? As God is, is, we know that this is His mission. This is what He wants to do. So as I'm making a decision, it's less about what's going to make me the most money, what's going to make me the most comfortable, what's going to make me the most happy. But if I am being sent, if this is what God is doing in the world, and this is what I uh, want to do with my life and what will make my life count, does this decision advance the mission? The third A is, is it being affirmed by the godly leaders in my life? And praise God that He has put us in a family of faith with, uh, with elders and small group leaders, those that know us and love us. And so as we are making a decision, we don't have to do that in isolation. We don't just do that independently. We have the wisdom, the collective wisdom of God's people around us. And so we invite one another into the decisions in our life, especially when it comes to, man, is this where I'm being sent? Is this how I can be most useful to the Lord? And God's people, the leaders that he puts in our life, they can affirm that and say, yes, you're gifted in that way. Yes, that is wise. Yes, this is advancing the mission. We stand behind you and we support you in this. So it's not a foolproof test, but I offer it to you this morning as you try to think through uh, these uh, ideas of um, what am I called to do? What am I being sent to do? How am I making my decisions as I want to use my gifts in life for the gospel? So here's, here's the thing. You, like Jonah, you're likely not being sent to Nineveh. But You are here this morning because you have been sent to New Bromfels. You have been sent to New Braunfels. You have been sent to your street. You have been sent to your workplace. You have been placed in your family to be his messenger, to live out the gospel, to call people, yes, to call people to Christ, uh, both with your words and your actions and the influence of your life. You are his ambassador with a message that he has sent you to proclaim. And do you know what? As we, as we do this, as we take the opportunities that God gives us, as we want a life that is useful to the Lord, as we're using our gifts and our passions for the gospel's sake, then we can, here's the second point, well, we can just stand back and be amazed at the Lord's work. We I mean, just be amazed at the Lord's work. See, we ended there in chapter or verse four of chapter three with the just simple five word message. And the rest of the chapter here is quite incredible compared to the seemingly incons- uh, insignificant message that Jonah is preaching here. It's almost like things don't line up. Uh, uh, that. It's like Jonah just comes and preaches this reluctant five word message. And then there is a massive revival. People are believing in God. But see, here's the thing. That's the whole point. It doesn't necessarily line up because God isn't like the fruit isn't necessarily all uh, isn't synonymous with all the flowery or eloquence or the power or the giftedness of the people. The fruit comes from the Lord. He's the one that uh, 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 transforms people's life. He's the one that bears the fruit. We are just to be faithful Even in the preaching, the most simple of messages. Even in living, the most simple of intentionally influential lives. It's the whole point. It's the whole point. See, God was—he was on mission here to save many in Nineveh, and there was no stopping this. Nineveh, which is—here's the thing—they were known for their cruelty and their violence. This was their, like, national reputation for just how wicked and cruel they could be, how torturous and murderous and how uh, just wicked they could be. Though at this point of Jonah, they were likely not the world superpower that they would be later, some 50 years or so after this, when when they would take Israel captive. Though they're not, they're still just, like, culturally cruel. Hostile to one another and to especially to outsiders. And so this, knowing this is their reputation, we can cut Jonah a little slack as to his reluctance for being sent there, right? Like, this is a tough assignment. Imagine yourself, like God, sending you to the most hostile nation on, on the planet Earth right now to a place where they are, are, are so hostile and cruel to God's people, where just the name of Christ and the fact that you would claim Christ would, is a death sentence among them. This, this is Jonah's assignment, assignment. And so you can imagine, like, we can cut him a little slack here, but God's mission would not be stopped. He's always been in the business of saving his enemies, even the worst of offenders. And yet he's sent, and what happens in verse 5? The people of Nineveh believed God. They didn't just believe in God. They didn't just believe that God exists. They believed God. They believed that he was who he says he was, or at least who Jonah was preaching. And they believed that this was the one true and living God and that he would do what he said and promised he would do. He would annihilate them. This should should blow us away. This is God's enemies believing him and turning from, look, they call for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This just uh, is unleashed across society, from the most wealthy to the most poor, all the way up even to the political rulers. Verse 6, it's not only in the people, but the word reaches the king of Nineveh. Even the king. And so at this point, there's some debate as whether Nineveh was, the, uh, was at this point the capital of the nation of Assyria or for somewhere else at this point. They're not quite sure, but it's, it's remarkable nonetheless, whether he's like the whole, you know, like the El Presidente of the whole place or he's just like the local leader of this exceedingly great city. But the thing is he himself humbles himself. He arises from his throne, removes his royal robes, The elegant clothing that he was wearing and he covers himself with sackcloth just like the other people. And he goes and he sits in ashes. Why the change of clothes? Why the sitting in ashes? It's to demonstrate the lowest of lows. Their humility. They humble themselves. They put on this sackcloth which was an itchy material made of like camel's hair or goat's hair. Think of like wearing yourself a burlap sack. That sounds like the most frustrating irritable set of clothes we could ever wear right how could you get anything done because all day you would be itching yourself and they sit he goes and sits in ashes as if he's lost everything as if like the the house is burned down he is so desperate he is at the lowest of lows before the lord and so he the king does this the people do this and then get this how is this for an executive order from the king of the land Right? Look at verse 7. He issues a proclamation and publishes through Nineveh this executive order, this mandate. Let the decree of the king and his no, or let neither man, sorry, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You know, regardless of what you think of executive orders in general or our most recent one, how amazing would it be for any ruler to issue a national order? call to repentance on Christ. But let us not forget from passage like this, culturally applied even today, that the Lord can turn the heart of King. Our hope is not in any king, our hope is not in any ruler, but in the king of kings. Proverbs 21.1 reminds us with this Proverbs. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Whenever there's a law made, whenever there's a mandate made, we can rest, church. We can rest as God's beloved, knowing the king of kings is still in us charge you can do the most impossible of things here so what do we what do we do is God's on his mission he hasn't stopped there's no stopping it we can be amazed at what God is doing even when it is the most confusing to us the people believe God the king humbles himself and even calls even the beasts to take part in this isn't this wild here, not the herd nor flock, no beasts are to take anything. Why? What's, what's, what's up with all of this? Well, I think there's a bigger spiritual picture in this. Romans 8 tells us that all of creation is groaning under the consequences of sin. And so here's just a, 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 a picture of that. But it just, you know, very specifically speaking, they were, lived in an agrarian culture. They were farmers. They depended upon these animals. They, they, they would, uh, much like you know, many of our farmers today, and in our most recent history here in our, uh, in our country as well, you took care of your animals before you took care of yourself. You fed your horse, you fed your cows, you fed them. Why? Because they would, uh, they helped you and they served you, and they would likely feed you uh, before long as well. And so they are going the extra mile in their repentance. No, or no one will be uh, held high. We are all being humbled even to the beasts of the field. But you know what's so ironic here? Is that the king's message is more like spiritually complete in a gospel call than even Jonah the prophet. He, he calls them to, even though there's some uncertainty in, in verse nine, he's like, well, who knows? We're going to do this. We're going to humble ourselves. Who knows? The God who has promised us wrath upon us, he may relent Towards us, and though there's some like uncertainty there, uh, be sure there's in, in verse 10. There's no uncertainty that God does indeed relent, right? And He did not do it. The verse ends. There is no uncertainty here. And see what does God do? He 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 sees what they did. Not that they turned, uh, you know, not that they put on their sackcloth and ashes. God's not like impressed by all of our activity, but that they turned. From their evil way in their heart. That's what gets God's attention. Turning away here. See, the prophet Joel would call the people of Judah to a similar repentance Uh, years later. In Joel 2, verse 13, he says this Rend your hearts and not your garments. The Lord isn't about like outward shows. He's about our heart, our repentance that begins here. He says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. See, church, this morning, in this passage, in the whole book of Jonah, we can be certain of the Lord's relentless character and his action. His mission will not be stopped. He will punish all sin left unrepented, but he will also forgive all sin that is repented. And so as we think through these things, as we see the character and nature of God here, to borrow the language of Romans 11, note then the kindness and severity of God. Kindness towards those who believe and a severity towards those who continue in their own way. And you know, here's the thing, though, Jonah is like a narrative here. It's a narrative that is meant to teach Israel there originally, those uh, original hearers, It was meant to teach them a bigger lesson. Jonah is, uh, he is representing the people of Israel in this message to them. And Nineveh is representing the Gentile world. He's teaching them a bigger lesson. See, in Jewish thinking, there there was the Jews, there was the Israelites, and then everybody else, all the other nations of the world, they were Gentiles. And so through this message, though it is a narrative about Jonah's life, he is teaching the people of Israel a bigger lesson. God was on mission to take his saving grace to the world to the whole world, and there was no stopping it. Jonah's sin could not stop it to getting to Nineveh. Israel's sin, their disobedience to the Lord in this season, though they had turned inward and they they were not living as a light, though they had stopped following the Lord's ways, even their sin would not stop the gospel, would not stop God's activity to the nations. So we today who are Gentiles, which I'm Probably one of the best, like 100% of us in here. Maybe maybe there's a few who have Jewish roots. But we who are Gentiles then have been grafted into God's unstoppable family tree. No disease, no sin, no chopping off, nothing has stopped God's growth. Let us be amazed. Let us be amazed and worship the Lord this morning at his work through us, in us, and through us. Let our praise be that much louder as we see uh, what God has done, as we grasp his saving grace. Let our work for the Lord be that much more expectant, that much more intentional, that much more missional, as we marvel that God would use us as agents of his mercy That as we work for him, as we are sent to uh, use our gifts, that the simplest things as a smile from the parking lot, directions to uh, Redemption Kids, of serving kids here and making coffee and all the ways that we love and work for the Lord here on Sundays and all throughout the week and the places that you live and work and study and go and frequent, that God is sending you as an ambassador for his mercy over and over, second chance after third chance after fourth chance, all on mission. Why? Because we are both deeply loved and deliberately sent to live on that mission. As individuals here, as the mission is continuing, as he's continuing it through our church and in many churches, the uh, Lord willing to be planted through us, God still has disciples to make mature and multiply through us, y'all. There's no stopping it here. Why? Because God will be glorified and he will rescue even his enemies. Even his enemies. Doesn't this get us excited? Like even just thinking about this, doesn't this like get us fired up that we have been sent on mission? And so like as we think about what God has done and what he did to accomplish this, that he sent Christ, Christ who died so that this would happen, Christ who rose again, To make us his disciples, to mature us and to multiply us out, it is only appropriate that we do respond with communion. We would cast our minds to the cross. We would remember what Christ has done, be nourished here on his body and blood as we uh, worship him and then are sent out. So what I want to do is I want to just pray for us to prepare our hearts and we'll take communion we'll sing a closing song. So join me in that.